have come to say that Africa has suffered enough of the burden of history, that it does not want to be the place of a new Cold War, but rather a pole of stability, an opportunity open to all of its partners on a mutually beneficial basis. Welcome to The Crane, an Africa-China podcast. In this episode, we'll be looking at what has been unfolding at the United Nations General Assembly, the 77th session that was held in New York over the past uh, two weeks or so, the end of September 2022. As you just heard, one of the addresses that has kind of gone viral is President of Senegal and Chairperson of the African Union, Maki Sall has rejected US-led efforts to pressure Africa into picking sides in contemporary global affairs. You know, we heard him say, Africa has suffered enough of the burden of history. It does not want to be breeding, to want to be a breeding ground for a new Cold War. And we thought this was interesting because there were many um, echoing these calls. We'll possibly hear a clip from uh, Naledi Pando, but she also, the, the foreign minister of South Africa, Naledi Pando, also mentioned how um, Africans don't want to be caught up in a war. And among other things, they also discussed, of course, things like the disproportionate effect climate change has had on Africa, despite Africa not being one of the prime or key um, regions uh, contributing to carbon emissions. And she and many others have also called on the need for the common but differentiated responsibility, which was part of a declaration, a UN declaration made in 1992. And so what we heard from many of the, the African leaders at the United Nations General Assembly over the last two weeks has been this kind of rejection of Africa standing not only at the nexus of the new Cold Wars that are unfolding and how they don't want to be involved, but have also been raising the questions around how um, Africans are disproportionately burdened with a lot of the uh, crises and dilemmas of humanity, yet are not part of the groups who are generating or causing um, uh, the main effects of these different crises. But Amadeus, I think to back up a little bit, I think it's important we, we just briefly mention the history of the United Nations, just for folks to get a sense, right? Totally. Let's put this situation into context. Because not many know that the United Nations, you know, it was created as an intergovernmental organization at the end of the Second World War. And there were about 50 countries who originally were present to sign a charter in June 1945. And, you know, the charter has, you know, an extremely detailed um, and it is a detailed and lengthy document around specific agreements. But of course, none of these are binding agreements per se, as, as we've seen in the 77 years since the signing, that not everyone will abide by it. But it does have, you know, the basic principles um, that we would hope all nations would want to abide to, such as, you know, one of the things it says is that the reason they were created was to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war and wanting to, in, I'm quoting again, reaffirm faith in the fundamental human rights. 
as well as, and I'll quote one last time, establishing conditions under which justice and respect for obligations arising from treaties and other sources can be maintained. So, you know, there's, the U- United Nations is, is supposed to be an international body that where people have come together and made certain resolutions, but it, it's not legally binding per se. So that's one. Two is that the world does look to the United Nations as one of the key international multilateral bodies in which um, different nations can represent their interests. But many also agree that the international capitalist system and its various forms of competition uh, do generate wars, do generate deprivation, um, that this kind of international regulatory body um, hopes to play a role in alleviating, but hasn't necessarily been able to. And part of this, you know, from the kind of left analysis has been that, you know, it was grounded and based on what preceded it. The United Nations was the League of Nations, which was set up in 1919 after the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. And the treaty basically saw Europe being carved up between the victorious powers. And, um, you know, at the time, you know, President Woodrow Wilson uh, talked about how it would be based on a principle of the United States. Yeah, of the United States. <laughs> talked about how it would be based on, you know, the principles of self determination, etc. But in the years that preceded, uh, many have viewed it, especially on the left analysis, as rather a gathering of 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 Vladimir Lenin, who was the the leader of the Soviet Union, described it as. Uh, as a thieves' kitchen, where the major powers basically agree on how they can better subjugate smaller countries, and the mandate is often at the interests of the bigger nations. And we saw this in multiple examples where um, lots of resolutions that we would think should be abided by, such as non-intervention or occupation of other territories, was undermined in in different moments. In 1935, we saw Italy invade Abyssinia, what we know today as Ethiopia, and essentially got the help of the United Kingdom and France to annex and occupy um, what was then known as Abyssinia. So it from this kind of historical origins is just to set the stage that within the world we've inherited, the United Nations comes out of this kind of legacy, even though it was, it has and continues to try to build peace, to um, deal with poverty, to deal with all the dilemmas of humanity, but it still has this underpinning in power relationships that are often asymmetrical. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that then around where Africa finds itself in the United Nations. Um, but perhaps let's start off with this clip from Naledi Pandor. Um, which I thought was very interesting. Mr. President, I don't need to reiterate that building a better world requires peace and stability. South Africa continues to believe that conflict resolution must not come through fueling conflicts, but through investing in efforts aimed at political dialogue. We should aspire to peace as a global public good. There have been no winners of the wars of the past seven decades. Instead, they engendered strife, distrust among nations, divisions, as we see this week, a perpetual misallocation of resources to weapons, increased poverty and underdevelopment. All these are features and effects of war. 
As you just heard, Naledi Pando, South African Foreign Minister, in her address is basically, you know, asking and, and discussing how there needs to be a serious reform within the Security Council, which we know only there are five permanent members in the Security Council, none of which are, are African, and despite the fact that Africa represents a major block of United Nations members. Um, so. I think that's an interesting call. What do you think? And maybe, Amadeus, you can tell us a little bit more about what Africa, where Africa stands in the United Nations. Indeed, Mika. In fact, this is something that's been interesting to me for a very, very long time because in my teenage years, I was a member of the Model United Nations program that um, is set up to introduce high school students mostly um, to the workings and functions of the United Nations. And I was very, very passionate about this until I realized that there were some very significant, deliberate structural weaknesses in the system. So um, to look at the impact of the United Nations and at the relationship between the United Nations and Africa, we need to understand that United Nations member states are broken down into regional groups, of which Africa, or the Africa group, is the largest. So the Africa group is made out of 54 countries on the continent that make up 28% of all United Nations members. So that translates to roughly something like one in five UN members are African countries. Now, you'd think that this high percentage of African participation in the United Nations would lead to the United Nations being representative of African interests and needs. But there are structural issues at play, some of which you alluded to previously, that actually prevent the UN from being an effective practical vehicle through which African um, interests and needs can be met. So, for example, we have the all-powerful Security Council. Uh, what most people don't realize is that uh, the United Nations can pass resolutions, but that these resolutions are often non-binding. There are no mechanisms for enforcing violations or no mechanisms that could force major world powers or regional powers to comply because the United Nations just doesn't have the framework or the economic and military power by itself to back that up. And going back to the issue of the Security Council. So the Security Council sits at the very, very top of the UN hierarchy. And it's made out of five countries, that is five of the major victors in World War II against the Nazi-German-led uh, Axis powers. And those are the United States, uh, the UK, France, Russia, and China. And these five permanent members can veto any UN resolution they don't like with absolutely no recourse. There is no African representation amongst the permanent members of the Security Council and this imbalance is also often replicated in other multi, um, multilateral platforms, such as the G20, where South Africa is the only representative of the continent, despite the African Union having pushed for the inclusion of African membership in the G20 since 1999. So for 22 years plus, the AU has been lobbying to be included for more African representation in the G20 hasn't happened yet. Now, 
the AU, the African Union, and the New Partnership for Africa's Development uh, have received invitations to G20 gatherings, but that is not the same as being permanently represented as full members in this particular grouping. There's actually a G20 meeting coming up in Bali, Indonesia, November this year. So I'm sure that's something we'll cover um, when the time comes as well. And it will be important to cover for our China-Africa listenership since China recently, I think it was in August or so, uh, was publicly endorsing that African Union should have a permanent full membership in the G20. So it is important because the G20 basically is a gathering of, um, I think to in total, it's 80% of the global economy is represented in the G20. And so that would be an important area for Africa to have a permanent say and a contributing role. Totally. And it's actually shocking that until China came out this year in support of the AU demand for permanent African representation on the G20 that uh, no other major world power or member of the G20 has uh, provided the AU with this sort of strong backing. Now, in 2001, the African Union um, adopted the New Partnership for Africa's Development, that is NEPAD, which is a roadmap for the continent's development, primarily its economic and industrial development, but it also has social and cultural dimensions. In 2019, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution committing the organization to supporting NEPAD. This is really, really important. But the United States voted against this resolution, and the EU bloc, the European Union bloc, actually abstained for it. So what happened? This is kind of an illustration of how the UN system, while well-intentioned, actually fails to deliver practical and effective change for Africa. So during this NEPAD resolution, at the core of it was a call that all African development partners, everybody who wants to help Africa develop, needs to align their efforts on infrastructure development. Infrastructure was identified as the key component to Africa's um, industrial uh, development and economic progress. And the call on all nations was to cooperate and coordinate on this effort in the spirit of win-win cooperation. Now, the Americans or the United States and the European Union were offended by the phrase win-win cooperation, claiming it would focus on economic gains over what they call sustainable development, and that the term win-win cooperation um, would imply support for uh, a a developmental policy promoted by China. So, of course, when it's not in the U.S.'s words, (laughs) then the rest of the world doesn't get to move forward. Which is incredible, right? It is wording. We are literally talking about a phrase, right? And over a phrase, I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe this was also just some excuse, but it's actually rather shocking. How petty do you have to be to tank an actual development plan over a phrase that you don't like, that simply talks about 
projects being beneficial for all parties involved. I don't see where the controversy is, but apparently they really didn't like it. And I mean, I think this relates to then what we heard from the Prime Minister Manase Sogavare, he's from Solomon Islands, excuse my pronunciation, who um, had the following to say. We can play a clip. Solomon Islands had been unfairly targeted since formalizing diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China just over three years ago. We have been subjected to a barrage of unwarranted and misplaced criticisms, misinformation, and intimidations that threatens our democracy and sovereignty. Solomon Islands has been vilified in the media since formalizing its relationship with China. Solomon Islands has adopted a friends to all and enemies to none foreign policy. In implementing this policy, we will not align ourselves with any external powers or security architecture that targets our or any other sovereign country or threaten regional and international peace. Solomon Islands will not be coerced into choosing sites. And I'm reminded of the wisdom conveyed by the late President Nelson Mandela during an interview with Ted Koppel, which is relevant to our situation, and I quote, one of the mistakes which some political analysts, analysts make is to think their enemies should be our enemies. Our attitude towards any country is determined by the attitude of that country to our struggle, end of quote. Solomon Islands has no enemies, only friends. Our struggle is to develop our country. We stretch out our hand of friendship and seek genuine and honest cooperation and partnership with all. So in this, he's basically, of course, telling us that the Solomon Islands has been unfairly targeted since it formalized its relationship with China. And I think this relates to the point you just raised, because it seems as though when it also comes to um, international relations, if we're not following the lead of the U.S. and the West, then um, you are open to, to, to being coerced into joining um, a new Cold War that is being led by the U.S., which, you know, is it's extremely problematic if we understand the that the principles of the UN, the the basic agreements in the UN are around multilateralism and um, multipolarity. Essentially, um, it's it's a I think it's an interesting moment that he raised that quite a I think a brave thing to raise the Solomon Islands out there. Oh, indeed. Indeed. The Australians are losing their mind over this. And there have even been calls in Australian major mainstream Australian newspapers for military action to be taken against the sovereign state of the Solomon Islands simply because they don't want to choose sides. That's incredible. I didn't actually I haven't heard that yet. We definitely should link that article in the in the description. And I mean, this is part of a this process that has led to this moment, of course, has to do with the fact that China has been having increasing space in international relations, in international economic exchange and cooperation, which, you know, started off, I think the the key phase in recent years has been 
uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, which we've mentioned in previous episodes that began in 2013. And um, that in itself has significant implications for NEPAD because it could help to integrate, you know, the regional economic integration processes by mobilizing funds to address Africa's infrastructure gap, which, you know, the African Development Bank estimated as around, you know, 100 billion per year. Uh, and I think we've already seen this. And part of the reason why we called the crane is because we're thinking about development, what gets built out of machinery such as a crane um, in relation to China, Africa. And so, you know, the this kind of effort of the infrastructure, which I, I think we need to go into a more detailed episode in future about what some of the infrastructural um, developments have been in regards to the China-Africa relationship, because right now African nations generally tend to trade more with Europe and Asia. I think it's 35% for Europe, Asia is around 31%, than with our own neighboring markets, than with our own you know, fellow African countries. And in response to this, we've seen promises from the US and G7, when the G7 largely representing, representing US-aligned um, countries, uh, they've promised to mobilize, you know, 600 billion by 2027 for in infrastructure under the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. But for us it, it, and for many um, China-Africa experts, it seems to us to be a hollow attempt to globally compete with China's Belt and Road Initiative as um, it's been decades now that the U.S., for example, has been talking about investing in infrastructure and little has really been um, achieved in the last few decades. But, you know, this is all part of, and we, I think we've talked about it in a previous episode in some detail, there seems to be, Africa seems to be caught in a world where there seems to be a new Cold War that the U.S. is waging. And in fact, um, my uh, research organization, Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, has published two really key studies. Um, one that looks at the kind of historic integration of Eurasia through initiatives like the BRI and BRICS and how the rise of China has threatened the, the primacy of the US and global North elites. Um, the other I'll mention shortly, but it, with regards to this specific study, you know, it highlights aspects such as the fact that China's, you know, massive industrial and technological capacity, coupled with Russia's vast energy and mineral resources, has drawn many countries into the BRI, regardless of their kind of political orientations. I mean, it includes European countries like Germany and Poland. And it also tries to kind of delve into then what are some of the strategies the U.S. has been taken in, in the last few decades to kind of regain um, a sense of hegemony around the world. And I think what's most worrying is we are at a stage in which, you know, based on many American policy papers and official statements by U.S. government adjacent sources, the U.S. appears to even be willing to engage in nuclear war against its geopolitical rivals like China and Russia in order to ensure that it's the world hegemon. And seems to be trying to throw it. That's just insane. Yes, it's trying to throw it almost all <laughs> efforts for a multipolar world from emerging. And a multipolar world, for many of us, means 
more equal distribution, more democratization of the international political space, right? Totally. And we, we've seen this in this kind of hybrid warfare being used by the U.S. as um, the U.S. has actually allocated a total of $1.5 billion um, allocated for the years 20, uh, 2022 to 2026 for what it calls influence operations under the Strategic Competition Act of 2021, which is basically any f- ways of of targeting China and its projects and delegitimating it through various media media projects. Um, I think in an episode you mentioned the Zimbabwe the Zimbabwe incident. What was that? Exactly the incidents in Zimbabwe, where um, the Zimbabwe's major newspaper, uh, National Daily, the Herald, exposed what it called, um, and I quote, a plan to undermine Chinese investment in Zimbabwe. And uh, this was allegedly carried out and funded by the United uh, States Embassy in Zimbabwe, uh, who were willing to pay journalists up to 1,000 US dollars per negative story about Chinese investment and businesses in the country. Utterly crazy. I mean, that's, and that's only the ones, you know, that were local journalists have been able to uncover. I'm sure there's much, much more if we follow, follow the money. Is that what they say? Follow the money trail? Oh, follow the, follow the money. Uh, At the end of the day, that 1.5 billion has to be spent somewhere, right? So if you're going to pay journalists in Africa a thousand uh, dollars per story um, to um, attack Chinese investment in their particular countries or to amplify and um, magnify um, conflicts, contradictions, paradoxes um, in China's presence in Africa. Well, um, I guess that's a cheap investment. I guess that is cheaper than actually investing in African infrastructure. <laughs> Very much so. But as we've heard from the different uh, African leaders and, you know, the leader of Solomon Islands, in the global south, there does seem to be a mood for non-alignment that is re-emerging. And I mentioned Tricon has come out with another joint publication uh, that was jointly published with Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, the, uh, you know, previous Labour leader in the UK, his he has a project called the Peace and Justice Project, as well as two media institutes, Globetrotters and Morningstar, basically collaborated with Tricontinental to produce a new study, um, which is basically a series of previously published um, articles by different people from across the world uh, look, that explore some of the new turns towards non-alignment and what kind of possibilities it holds for peace. So we'll drop a link for that um, that uh, new study, and it's called Looking Over the Horizon at Non-Alignment and Peace. And uh, I think that's precisely the kind of conjuncture we find ourselves right now. Very much so. I think everything we have heard and seen and covered in today's episode makes it clear that African leaders regardless of their political alignments and ideologies, have made it clear that they do not want our continent to be turned into a battlefield for a new Cold War of the old colonial hegemonic order against the new multipolar global South that we're seeing emerge right now. So I'd like to end this episode 
of our podcast with a quote from Malawian President um, Lazarus uh, Chakwera, uh, who was speaking during a Southern Africa Development Community Meeting in August this year. And he said, Africa is not for sale. Africa is open for business, but not for sale or looting. We must defend what is ours and make sure that no one takes from us what is ours. I think that's a really powerful note to end our podcast on. Totally agree. And uh, hopefully we will see some of this defense happening in Bali in November at the next G20 summit. And hopefully uh, we can see Africans gaining more permanent positions in these different multilateral intergovernmental bodies in order to better secure our mandates and advance the African development agenda. You have been listening to The Crane, an Africa-China podcast. You can Follow us on Twitter at Dongsheng News. You can go and visit us, dongshengnews.org, as we are produced by the Dongsheng Collective. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to get a weekly media digest on what's happening in China, as well as subscribe to Chinese Voices, where we uh, curate different important interventions coming from China. And don't forget to like and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us grow and reach out to more people like you who are interested in Africa-China from an African perspective. Thank you for listening. Catch you soon.